Welcome to Reforming Slavics. My name is Nick. Today we'll be talking about the death of Christ, some terms like atonement, double imputation, um, substitutionary atonement specifically, and how God was just and the justifier of sinners. When I was in middle school, I went to teen summer camp, and I clearly remember this. There was a skit put on by that older youth uh, to a song by How's Life, I believe it was, and the song's title was You're Everything, I Believe, or You're All I Need, something like that. And the skit was basically a representation of a woman who was trapped within uh, labeled people, and people were labeled like anxiety, depression, sin, um, and different types of sins. And it seemed as though Jesus was pulling on a rope, trying to get to her. And every time he pulled, it was um, prevented from coming close to him because all these things that were labeled that were represented as people in the scale were pulling her back. And finally, Jesus comes and completely makes all those people fall and then they're together. Now, at that age, I had no conception of the specifics of the gospel and what actually happened on the cross and uh, the atonement and um, reconciliation with God that occurred uh, when Jesus died. And so in my head, the gospel was simply Jesus coming and somehow um, destroying Satan. And now we had uh, an opportunity to be with Jesus. Um, Satan was the problem. Satan was the issue not God himself. And there is this common misconception about the cross that when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, um, there was a essentially an illustration that said Jesus comes up to Satan and he has to pay him a ransom for all the souls that he needs to redeem. And um, Jesus pays Satan a ransom or a price in order to take the soul that Satan captured from him. Um, I'd like to dive into a couple of t passages and texts to show how mm -hmm. that's completely not the way it occurred. Sorry, my phone just rang. I buzzed. That's not the way the scripture describes the gospel. And it is, in fact, a, quite a different story. Let's start with Romans 3.21, continuing. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith that is that was shown that was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus the tension in scripture and the tension that we have about the cross and why the cross has to occur 
can be found and summed up in the verse. So God can be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. The question needs to be asked, why the cross needed to happen? Was the cross necessary? And it depends on why you think the cross was necessary, right? If we were to be reconciled, yes, the cross was necessary. But if we, if, if God chose not to rescue and reconcile us, there would be necess no necessity for the cross. The reason the cross is necessary is because God is holy and just. And he cannot pass over sin and turn a blind eye to it because of his very nature. Because God is just and holy, he must punish sin because of the wages of sin or death. And without the cross, there's no opportunity for men to come and trade places with someone else in order for someone else to be punished on their behalf. And this is um, kind of expounded upon and explained in John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Why did Jesus Christ say, I thirst? It seems to illustrate a picture of the wrath of God as a cup of sour wine. The Bible constantly, um, throughout Scripture, refers to God's anger against sin as a bowl of sour wine or the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God in Revelation. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying and the apostles are sleeping, he says these words, Let this cup pass over me, but not my will be done but yours. When Jesus mentions the cup that is to be passed over, it is the cup of God's wrath that is uh, looming on the brink of flooding the entire humanity because of their sin. The wrath of God is simply the just response of the anger of God against all the sin of all humanity. And so when Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, there's an illustration of what's going on between the Father and the Son. The Father is pouring out his wrath and Jesus Christ is drinking that cup on our behalf. In other words... The cup of wrath that is meant for all people who have sinned, Jesus Christ has taken upon himself and drinking the wrath that we sinners deserve on our behalf. And then after he drinks the cup, or he tastes of the wine, he says, it is finished. And the other question would be, what, what was finished on the cross? What actually was accomplished on that cross? As Jesus Christ's death is coming to fruition and he yields up his spirit, what did he accomplish? 
Well, there's a couple of things that I'd want to mention in a specific vocabulary just because the vocabulary uh, makes it very neat. Uh, Jesus actually died for all your sin. And this would be, in theological terms, called substitutionary atonement. Jesus was the substitute of sinful men on the cross. Jesus Christ came into this world, lived a perfect, obedient life, and then died an obedient death. The reason Jesus Christ actually had to live 33 years on this earth was because he had to have a perfect, righteous life and then die so that when he is dying for sinners who will put his well, their trust in him, he is able to give to the credit or to the accounts of those sinners his perfect righteousness, which is illustrated in scripture as a white robe. And he takes upon himself the dirty rags that we deserve. In other words, there is a, some people call it the great exchange or double imputation. We impute, to impute is to um, credit on someone's behalf. Meaning that if someone has a bill and you pay for it, you imputed your money on their behalf and there is no longer a bill needed to be paid. When we put our faith and trust in Christ and what he did on the cross, we impute all of our sin upon him. And he, in return, imputes all of his righteousness that he lived on this earth for uh, the time that he was obedient to the Father. And then at his death on the cross... He accomplishes and he fulfills that very ending of redeeming those who put their trust in him. Uh, I guess an easy way to remember this would be to say this common phrase, right? We're not saved by works, but we are saved. Sorry, we're not saved by our own works, but we are saved by works. We're saved by the works of Christ. We're saved by the works of another. We're saved by the works in the life of Christ and the work of the cross. And so when Jesus Christ dies, he does that great exchange. He also has a very specific death. He dies for all sin once and for all, meaning that every sin that you have committed or will commit or any saint who puts their trust in him, all of that sin had to be atoned for on the cross. There's no more necessity for atonement. Atonement, simply put, is the idea that when God is angry and he want, needs to punish sinners for the things that they have done because he's a righteous judge, there has to be something that stands in between the wrath of God and us. And that wall, that in-between thing is a bloody Jesus hanging on the rugged cross. And so as Jesus hanging there, what happens is he finishes the work that's necessary in order for us to be redeemed and saved and purchased. There is an actual exchange that occurs, not between Satan and Jesus, but it's God the Father punishing the Son on our behalf. This goes back to uh, prophecy even from the very beginning of uh, the scriptures. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, 
Adam and Eve participate in biting the fruit and obviously sin and disobey God. And when God is walking in the cool of the breeze of the morning in, in the garden, he calls to them and notices that they're not there. And so he eventually finds them. Obviously, God knew what they were. It's just using language that we could understand, right? And he speaks um, the curse that Adam and Eve deserve, and then he speaks to the serpent. This is what he says. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you should bruise his heel. This is the very first prophecy that there is an actual redemption that is coming through the seed of the woman and to humanity. As soon as the curse is, um, I guess you would say the curse is given because of sin, the curse is simply the just and due punishment for the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Automatically, not automatically, but right away, God gives hope. And the hope is that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush Satan's head on, and heal Bruce's heel. And this is called, often in theological terms, uh, the Proto-Evangelium or the Proto-Gospel, like a prototype. Uh, if you're creating an invention and you want to create a first version of it, you'd call it a prototype. And this is simply referred to as the prototype of the gospel is the very first mention of a redeemer coming and actually taking upon himself the punishment that Adam and Eve deserved. Because if this, it's actually really interesting, if this promise wasn't given, the automatic wage for participating in disobeying God was death. And the only reason Adam and Eve didn't die is because before the foundation of the earth, right, the Lamb of God was already slain. It was in the plan and forbearance of God that Jesus Christ would die on the cross. Um, Christ dying on the cross was not plan B. It was, it was the only plan, right? God knew that there must be an atonement and redemption for sinners in order for them to believe on Jesus to be saved because they clearly could not attain righteousness for their own sake and on their own behalf. This is also seen in the idea of the lamb being slain every single time someone wanted to atone for sin in uh, the Old Testament Israel. What they would do is they'd take the lamb, they'd kill it, and then they'd take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. This is a great picture and illustration of how it is to God the Father that Jesus Christ pays the debt that we have incurred before a most holy God. And a lot of times we don't understand this debt because we believe that we're good people or that we have some kind of righteousness in us. But here in Romans 3, there, there's a very simple and plain truth. And Romans 3.23 is a very 
short verse that describes all of humanity. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no single individual on earth for whom there is no necessity for Jesus to die. In fact, even the Old Testament saints were not covered or saved by the lands and the bulls that they sacrificed. The only way the Old Testament saints were even saved was by the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the thing that redeems New Testament and Old Testament saints. The simple fact uh, is that there was no opportunity or ability for anyone to redeem themselves because all were sinful. Even the high priests had to atone for themselves every time before they stepped into the Holy of Holies. And they did this yearly. But when Christ comes, it says, he did it once for all. There was no more necessity for atonement. And that's why the veil was rent in two um, right after Jesus lifts up his spirit. It's because there's no more need for atonement from anyone else. Christ fulfills the righteous requirements that the law deserved. Let's see. We, we find this specifically also in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. And he was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see the off, his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We see again here that it was the will of God to crush his only son on our behalf. It was not an exchange between Satan for the souls of men or any other entity. It wasn't to somehow conquer the souls of men from their own sin. It was the rescue was not from anyone but God himself. We had to be rescued from the fury and the wrath of God. This is also very clear in passages when Jesus talks about the idea that fear not him who can destroy your body, but fear him who can destroy your body and then take your soul and throw it into the outer darkness. That individual is God. God is the one who takes and punishes sin because the only just punishment for sin is death and hell and the wrath of God for all eternity, right? A lot of people say that hell can be defined as the absence of God for all eternity. That's not true. The truth is, hell is defined as, biblically defined as, as the presence of the wrath of God for all eternity on sinners who justly deserve the punishment. And the entire world, me, everyone who is listening to my voice, is deserving of that very punishment because we have transgressed God's law. We have all fallen short of the standard that has been provided in the Ten Commandments. And so this tension of God being just and holy and the righteous judge and loving and kind and merciful is, is imploded and is put together at the cross where God the Father punishes his own son and becomes 
a just and holy judge who punishes sin, and yet the one who takes the very punishment that is given for sin and stands as the intercessor who takes all the wrath of God upon himself. And so the God who does not negate his law and just forgive evil men because that would be unjust now can freely say, by grace you are saved as a gift of eternal life. And he becomes both the punisher of sin and the redeemer of those who put their trust in him. Praise be to his glorious name.